Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. Shalom, shalom, and welcome back. And for those of you who are first time, welcome. I'm very excited. Today, we are privileged to have Rav Elchanan Miller, who, in addition to being a writer, a poet, someone who makes videos in Arabic to educate the Arab world about Judaism, also takes a little time to teach Torah every now and then, and thankfully at Pardes as well. So welcome, Elchanan. Thank you, Rav Tzvi. Great to be here. Okay, so here we are. It's hard to believe we got here so fast, but we are finishing the book of Vayikra. The book of Leviticus is about to be concluded with a, a double Parsha. Elchanan, what jumped out at you? Well, right off the bat, I mean, when you start Parshat Behar, which means in the mountain, Mount Sinai, we have a mitzvah that those of us who live in Israel are cognizant of, maybe those who are outside Israel a little bit less so, which is the mitzvah of Shemitah, or the sabbatical year, Shnat Hasheva. And the Shemitah year comes around, as its name indicates, every seven years, and we lay the land fallow. We don't cultivate it, we don't touch it, and we let the animals of the field and anyone else who wants to take that land or use it, use it. And it's sort of a detachment between us and our private property. Now, in Israel, we still observe some of those mitzvot, right? We have to be very aware on the seventh year, on the Shemitah year, what produce we consume, and there's a way of doing that in a halachic way, but it's a land-bound mitzvah. It's a mitzvah that is tied to the land of Israel and is still observed to this day in some way. In other ways, I feel like since we don't live in an agricultural society, perhaps mainstream people living in the cities, as most of us do, are also a little bit detached from the original mitzvah. So you raised a few things there. We're going to come back, I think, to the question of what this might mean to contemporary Israel, I think, a little bit later on. But I can't help but notice here we are in the book of Leviticus and Vayikra, and the book begins, Moshe is receiving instructions in the portable Mishkan, the portable temple in the desert. We are living very much as a desert nomadic people, and yet here we are with these instructions at the end of this book, centering us on land. And so I have to ask you, what is the message here about land and our relationship to land that we are meant to take away, especially at the end of this book about holiness and Kedusha. Right. So Vayikra is also known as the book of holiness and of Kedusha. And I think we're living already in the desert in preparation of what will happen in the land. And a lot of the mitzvot that we see in Kedoshim, for example, the portion we read earlier, is how are we a holy people vis-a-vis -vis the other nations of the land? How do we act in a way that's holy, in a way that's maybe distinct from customs that other nations that we will encounter as a people coming into the land? And I think the attitude to the land, maybe in a way, 
that is tied to being holy in a way that's not exploitative, in a way that has a healthier relationship, a relationship that maybe doesn't have absolute ownership. And that's a very important, I think, idea that comes out in this Parsha. Yeah, maybe you could explain a little bit about that, about especially when, you know, in the story, we seem to be directed towards our land. It's our land. God's going to give us our land. And it sounds like you're saying that here with Shemitah and Yovel, we're asked to pause and maybe rethink or find a new perspective on what our land means. Right. So before we come to Yovel, we have the idea of Shemitah, which is a seven-year cycle. And number seven comes up again and again in our ritual life. We all know about Shabbat, the seventh day. In Sfirata Omer that we're still in the midst of, we are counting seven weeks, building up from Pesach to Shavuot. So a very important central number is the number seven. And in football, of course, when you score a touchdown and get the extra point, you also get seven points. I'm not sure they based it on that, but I just think we should point that out. Thanks for uh, pointing Tremendous that out. Tremendous Jewish influence in uh, contemporary <laughs> <Right>. culture. <laughs> as, an, uh, as an Israeli born and bred, I'm less aware of the rules of football, but great. Yeah, the number seven is very important. And I would say that the Shemitah year is a partial restart, and we'll talk about Yovel in a minute, but in this partial restart, we let the land rest just as we rest and our household rest and our animals rest on Shabbat, the verses in the Torah in chapter 25 of Leviticus say, Shabbat Shabbat The land, in a way, rests. So it's not only human beings and animals that rest, but also inanimate objects like land has to rest. And that word Shabbat comes up again and again. Once again in verse 6, Vehaita Shabbat Haaretz Lachem Leochla the Shabbat of the land. So clearly there's this spiritual idea that not only humans need to rest, but also the land needs to rest. So help me understand this a little bit. So when you look at that phrase, because we understand why humans need to rest, and we understand why animals need to rest, and we even can understand why for us it's beneficial to pause in our endless toil and endless fixing and endless improving. But what do you think it means? What are we supposed to learn from the land resting? Right. So I don't think that the Torah is telling us that the land needs the rest for agricultural reasons or whatever. I think what the Torah is telling us, there is a social need, a societal need for a break and in a way to equalize the opportunities between landowners and in the reality that hasn't yet happened chronologically, but will happen in the book of Joshua when the land is divided between the tribes after it's conquered right, by Bnei Israel. After that happens, the land is ours and it's divided into tribes. And some people won't have that equal opportunity to enjoy the benefits of the land. It could be the ger, it could be the, the weak, it could be the widow, and it could be the animals. And in a way, the way I read these psukim are, we need to give a chance for other people or other animals or the other more generally to enjoy the land. So it's not so much for the land, in my opinion, it's more for the other elements of society that maybe we're not so aware of. So you feel this is about social justice fundamentally, that every seven years we go into this place where we create a great equalizer between in society and between people. We're all equally not landowners. Right. And I think that idea will come out much more clearly in the following verses when we talk about the Yovel, the Jubilee year. But even in the Shemitah year, when it says, Shabbat lachem, The land will go through a Shabbat, a rest. In verse 6, it says, so these are all people, the employees, the other, right, the foreigner, and then right. If you look at the common denominator between all of these categories, you see that they're all people who don't have land. 
And so I read it sort of through a socialist kind of, not to say communist, but maybe we'll come to this economic idea of the complete reshuffle in the Jubilee. But even in the Shemitah, where it's not a complete reallocation of land, we still have this idea that hands off, don't take care of your land, let other people who don't enjoy it on a regular basis enjoy that land. So learn your limits and make space for other people. Exactly. That's okay. Right. So when that process moves into the Jubilee year, as you point out, right at the end, there's in theory, there's this Shemitah year in year 49. And now we've done seven Shemitahs. Right. And now we're ready for the big number 50. And I'm imagining you're going to explain how this takes us maybe even a step farther than the Shemitah did. Yes. And first of all, the Torah needs to promise us that it'll be okay because now we're laying our land fallow not for one year, but for two consecutive years, which is even a bigger risk on that 50-year cycle. But there's something very ceremonial about the Jubilee, the Yovel. It begins with the blowing of the shofar, right, on Yom Kippur at the beginning of the Jubilee year, and continues with this word that is, I think, quite unusual in the Torah, ukratem dror ba'aretz lechol yoshveha. You will announce dror, which we understand as freedom, for all the people of the land. And then it says, v'shavtem ishel achuzato ve'ishel mishpachtot ashuvu. Every person will return to their, I would add in parentheses, original households or land, and to their original families. What does that mean? That means that in the past, a lot of transactions happened, a lot of land sales and purchases have happened, and somehow everything returns to its original state in year 50, and everyone gets back what they owned originally. Now, when we say originally, we don't mean at the beginning of time. We mean the original tallying, the original division of the land into tribes and territories. So the Torah imagines somehow that uh, every 50 years, those who have fallen into economic hard times and have sold their land, or as you spoke about, maybe even sold themselves as workers or as slaves, that the Jubilee year comes along and there's this restoration back to the moment, if I understand you correctly, of Chalukata Aretz, when the land is given in parcels out to the people. Everyone goes through this process almost of receiving their original portion once again. Right. So this, in a way, says that people have fallen into misfortune, circumstances changed, you might have become poor, you might have fallen into debt, you might have had to sell your ancestral land to someone else. And in year 50, everything, there's a restart. Everything goes back to the way it was. And this, I think, you know, thinking in economic terms is a very radical redivision of land. I mean, today you would call that radical socialism or even communism, right? It's not the state reclaiming land, but it's in a way redividing, reshuffling the cards. So let's talk about that reshuffling from a religious or spiritual perspective. You've made a very strong case, I think, so far. The Torah is imagining a type of social justice agenda, which tries to look out for the weak and the poor and those who've fallen on hard times and give people a fresh start or a restoration. But I'm wondering what you think is the theological message in all this, particularly in, if I think of this triangle of us, land, and God. Great. So I'd like to bring a spiritual idea from one of the great Hasidic thinkers of the 19th century, the Meshiloach, Rabbi Mordechai Yosef Leiner, who lived in the first half of the 19th century in Poland. And he's a very existentialist type of thinker and very spiritual. And he ties in this idea of redividing the land into the very famous Mishnah in tractate Avot, the wisdom of the sages, where we talk about four midot in the Adam, four attributes. 
האומר שלי שלי ושלך שלך זו מידה בינונית. He who says mine is mine and yours is yours, that's a medium trait. Which is sort of standard. That's the I average. I got my stuff, you got your stuff, you don't touch my stuff, I don't touch your stuff. Right, so the way you just phrased it now, Tzvi, is the other opinion in that Mishnah, which says, Zomidatzdom. Ah, well, saying it's negative. I was saying it sounds normal to me. Well, when you said you don't touch my stuff and I don't touch your stuff, it sounds very radical and very possessive. And I think that's what the Meshilach will allude to in a minute, when he'll say, mine is mine and yours is yours, don't cross my line. You know, this very territorial, this very possessive idea that could be considered normal and it also could be considered terrible, like the people of Sdom who were destroyed. Secondly, sheli shelcha veshelcha sheli, what is mine is yours and yours is mine, ama aretz. That person is an ignoramus or a simpleton, however you would translate ama aretz. They don't understand how the system works. They don't understand how property works. They're confused by the whole idea. Right. So our sages are clearly not saying there's no such thing as private property. So in that sense, our sages, uh, Chazal, are definitely not communists, right? I'm yeah. sure many of you are relieved by that thought right now. <laughs> there is definitely this idea of private property and ownership. Sheli shelcha, this is the third attribute. Sheli shelcha veshelcha shelcha, chasid. What is mine is yours, and yours is yours. This is a virtue. This is a chasid. This is a virtuous person. And finally, sheli, sheli veshelcha sheli, rasha. What is mine is mine, what is yours is mine, that's an evil person. I think this also makes sense intuitively. So he, I guess, superimposes this reading of the sages onto our context in his commentary on Parshat Behar. And he really talks about this restart that we spoke about as a returning to a sort of state of nature of how things should have been as they were meant to be by God. God gave every person, every tribe in Israel, their allocated portion in a way that was just and true. And somehow things went wrong, or things go wrong habitually in life. And here we are coming back to the way things were supposed to be, and God teaching us a lesson. That's, according to the Meshiloach, this idea of going back into this idea of shilcha shilcha, this idea of what is yours is yours. God actually deciding what really belongs to every person. But I'm trying to understand a little bit. It seems like the Meshulach is pointing out attention that we feel already, that on the one hand, there is this idea of shali, an idea of shalcha. There's mine and there's yours, and it's naive to think otherwise, or childish, or not realistic, or even foolish. On the other hand, if we get stuck in my shali, and what's mine is mine, I'm going to end up with a bad character trait, because I'm not going to be able to think about the other. So the question is, what do you understand from this text? What's the balance between, on the one hand, mine is mine. On the other hand, not only is what yours, yours, but in some way, I still want to see what's mine as being belonging to you or connected to you in some way. Right. I think it's a very tricky thing. He actually says something very surprising. He says, The attribute of what is yours is yours. In a way, it's more challenging or even a higher level to reach the realization of what is yours is yours and what is mine is mine than what is mine is yours. Maybe sometimes this, I don't know, overt generosity can deteriorate into virtue signaling. That's interesting. In other words, they don't really mean it, you're saying. You suspect that underneath it, they can't really mean that what's mine is yours. Not really. Everybody has their lines that they want to reserve for themselves. 
Yeah, that's one way of understanding it. I think it's either insincere or it's chaotic. And we do like order in our world. We do like this idea of respecting the other person and his boundaries and what he got. But then again, in the Jubilee year, in the Yovel, we have this restart. And this restart is explained in the Torah in words that, in equivocal way, that the land and us both belong to God. And I think this is a radical break from the idea in Genesis of the connection between land and people. Let me explain that. In the book of Genesis, Bereshit, God promises the land to Avraham, again, later to Isaac and Jacob, the land will be your offspring forever. There will be this eternal connection between you and the land. And in a way, that gives you a lot of confidence. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to do anything particular. Yes, you'll go down to Egypt and you'll suffer there for 400 years or 200 and There's, something There years. is that. But at the end, this gift is ours. That's it. It's right. It's yours forever. Uh-oh. And now we're reading ahead in the book. And now we read ahead in the book. In the book of Leviticus, we have a very different idea of the connection between us and the land. And that is a conditional connection. Now, in the book of Vaikra, this condition... Well, it's a detachment that keeps happening. It's cyclical, right? So you could say it's independent of our behavior because every 50 years, you can't become too attached to your orchard or to your tree or to your land, your soil, right? As many nations, right? In the Romantic period, I don't want to go too much into that, the Germans or the, you know, this idea of the land being kind of organic as part of the people. That's not a Torah idea in Vaikra. There is a detachment between the land and the people, the soil and the people. The land does not belong to the people, the folk, right? It belongs to God. In Bereshit, maybe you could say it does belong to the people, to the offspring of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. In Vaikra, we have a different idea. We have this idea that don't get too attached because it's not yours. It's God's, and he gives it to who he wants. And that idea will be developed even further, right, in the Brachot and the Klalot, and this idea that the prophets will also talk about later on, that if you behave improperly, God will take it away and replace you with another people, just as it did the people before you, the Emori, right? Which, in fact, in Bechukotai, we're going to be told very explicitly by God that everything is conditional, and if you don't follow the rules, you're in big trouble. Exactly. So that leaves the reader, or right, the Israelite, in a state of unrest and in a state of constant angst that his connection to the land, his living on the land is contingent and dependent on his behavior. Nothing's guaranteed. If you don't do what God commands you to do continuously, all the time, then your living on the land is in doubt. On the other hand, I mean, that's a very powerful message. But on the other hand, for 49 out of the 50 years, or for six out of the seven years, we are allowed to enter this alternative reality where it feels like it's mine. In other words, I hear what you're saying. You're saying at the end, those are just reminders of an ongoing existential reality. This really isn't yours. It really all belongs to God, and you're only here to fulfill a mission, to do a purpose, to build a society. The minute you don't, the contract has been broken and you don't get the land. But I almost feel still, we don't live in continuous Shemitah or Yovel. We are given the opportunity to have a Shali. Yeah. And to feel that. And I feel like coming back to the beautiful piece of Hasidut you brought, in a way, that's why Shali, Shali, and Shalcha, Shalcha is so hard. Because if I'm this perfect person, which some people say I am, some people say I'm not, we can leave that open. Zev in the room back there who's recording this is shaking his head no. But 
Okay, I'm just going to say, Zev, some people feel otherwise. In any event, right, and I have no attachment to anything, life is kind of easy. If I really break through that point where I don't care about anything belonging to me, I'm the most generous. I've reached the Zen Buddhist uh, ideal, and I'm good to go. But if I live in a reality where I do have a sense of Shelley, I do have a sense of there are things that are mine and there are things that are yours, to somehow live in that reality yet at the same time live in the reality of a generous spirit that doesn't get overly attached and is willing to share and does seek something good for everybody, that might be the hardest thing of all. Yeah, and definitely the 50-year cycle is a long cycle. And, you know, the life expectancy back then was not the life expectancy today. Easily, you could be born inside that cycle and never experience a Yovel in your lifetime, clearly. And that's why the Torah has to warn us, the lender, because another thing that happens on the Yovel is that all debts are canceled. Well, Shemitah year, every seven years, the debts right. are canceled. So the debts are canceled, and the Torah has to say, don't defraud your borrower, right? Because he'll forget, and you might forget for how long you're selling it, because every sale of land is based on this 50-year cycle, the land sales, right? And if you're selling someone a piece of land, he can only get to use it up until the Yovel year less than 50 years. It could be 20 years, it could be 10 years, and then it's back to, right? It's back to start. So he might forget. You in your contracts always have to be aware and cognizant of that cycle. So yes, people do forget that it's not theirs and people could manipulate it and use it against other people. But you're saying basically there's a built-in reminder. Everybody knows every sale is contingent. Everybody understands that there are these limitations waiting for them, whether it's the seven-year cycle and the limitation of my agriculture or my lending of money to other people, or it's this limitation of land sales where there's this reminder that's always present about these limits. At the same time, I'm still expected to function like a seller, like a buyer, like an owner, and somehow live in those two realities at the same time. I have two questions for you. One is, what do we do if the system doesn't work? And one could question whether it ever worked or not. And the second question I have for you is, what do you do with this as a, well, I'm going to say proud, but you can definitely disagree, a proud Israeli living as a Jew in modern Israel? Where are we today with these beautiful ideas, in your opinion, or where would you like us to be? You can go in any order you want. Okay, so those are two huge questions. Yes, they are. We have plenty of time. <laughs> Let's tackle them one at a time. We know, sadly, that this lofty idea of people putting their full confidence in God that will provide for us for those two years where we don't touch the land and that people will continue to lend even though their debts will be canceled in two years because God will provide, right? This lofty idea uh, that the Torah exalts, right, and amplifies didn't actually happen in history, which is a very sad realization. We think that we're, you know, of higher standards, but in reality, historically, that probably never happened. And that's why at some point in history, Hillel, the elder, had to institute the idea of prusbul. And the idea of prusbul is a mechanism whereby instead of lending to a person, you lend to an institution, right? A central, whatever, bank. And the court. The court, the court can court, collect right? your debts for you, yeah. And that court is not a person, so therefore it can do it. It's a bypass, right, around the prohibition. And that's how we still function today. That On the basis of that, we still have banks and we still have lending and we still have a financial system. Because Not to mention lending with interest and all the other things that we've come up with to right. live with contemporary So there's realities. tricks to get around it because in reality, these ideas that a financial system 
especially a very sort of high-level financial system, can't really work based on goodwill and based on faith in God alone. So do you think that's a failure? Like, does it make you sad when you think about that, that we couldn't do it? It does make me sad. It's also, I guess, a reflection on where theology meets reality or where the Torah values meet reality. And in some ways, you know, the Torah has safeguards for people who are not good, right? There's infidelity, there's murder, there's rape, there's all kinds of bad things that the Torah is aware of that are part of society. But it seems when we read this that it has this expectation that people will continue to lend. And there is no function in place in the Torah itself, from market failure, right, for, for that not happening. And we need to have the rabbis many centuries later to come in and say, no, this isn't working. We need to find a mechanism that's outside the Torah. So in a way then, it seems like you're arguing on some level that this finishing of Vayikra is, is aspirational, even though we, the reader, kind of understand that the aspiration is so lofty, in many ways so contrary to our nature of what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, that it's going to be very hard to implement. Right. And that's maybe the deep sense of the words, Kedoshim Tihyu, you will be, right? Uh, You're not holy now. Just as the Mashiach will always come sometime in the future, you know, you will always be holy. That's an aspiration, right? That's not a reality. And in the real life, in order for there to be loans, and actually in order to fulfill the purpose that the Torah wants to fulfill, this Which kind is of connects- that poor people do get to borrow money. Exactly. And this connects to the idea that you spoke with Rav Elisha in previous weeks about fulfilling the true intent of the Torah. You need to have a different system in place because obviously the Torah wants lending to continue. It doesn't want people to be destitute and not have money. It wants people to lend. It doesn't want homeless people, people on the street with nothing because the lenders are afraid. So in order to actually have that functioning society that has chesed, that has lending, we need a system that is more realistic. And less aspirational. So then that leads me, of course, to the next question when you look at modern Israel. Like here you are reading the book of Vayikra. And from what you described at the beginning, the book is outlining how God wants the Jewish people to live in the land, what kind of society we should build, our relationship to the land, to one another. So when you look at modern Israel today, are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? What are the things that come to mind that you would like to see us do differently, to change, to grow? Right. Well, okay. Just that question. That's it. <laughs> right. I actually just reflected a few days ago. You know, we just came out of a Shemitah year a few months ago. This past year was a Shemitah year in Israel. So we were in that mindset of Shemitah. And I was looking the other day at a tree packed with lemons in someone's backyard near my house. And I was thinking, if this were the Shemitah year, could I really dare just pick a lemon off the tree and not be afraid that I get shouted at? by the owner of that lemon tree. I wasn't sure. Maybe yes, maybe no. I think we've kind of become disconnected from the Torah commandments of that. I think we've become a hyper-capitalist society like the US, like Europe. The whole world is moving, I think, in that direction. Even countries that purport to be socialist like China are still very capitalist societies and Russia and places like that. So I think we've moved away from this idea. We've also become detached from the land. We've also moved away from this idea of personal lending, which is another thing. We just spoke about the lender and the borrower. We're not borrowing from individuals anymore. We're borrowing from banks. So if you come to the bank and ask for a loan, the person you're speaking to, even if it's a human being, and often it's a computer, but even if it's a human being, if he refuses your request, 
or gives you the request, it's not him speaking as a person. He's representing the institution, the bank that he works for. Not to mention they're doing it to get interest. It's a business proposition because they want more money in return. It's not a chesed. Exactly. But whatever his decision is, he's not doing it as a person. He's doing it as a representative of the bank. So this whole idea of personal relationships that come out in the Torah so clearly, your land, your tree, your household, your debt, your loan, your money, None of that is really part of our experience. So this is a reflection just of modern society and of modernity and of capitalism, wherever we are. But to the point of living in the land of Israel, yes, there are some remnants of this idea of Shemitah. The farmers have to be aware of this, but we found tricks there too. We sell our land sort of fictitiously to a Gentile and keep doing business as normal. That's one way of doing it. Other mechanisms do have, you know, dushat and other ways where we do respect that produce. I don't think that Zionism or Israel has completely fulfilled these ideas. I think it was also aspirational. I think we have a beautiful document called Megillat Atzma'ut. The Declaration of Independence. The Declaration yeah. of Independence. We just recently celebrated Yom Atzma'ut and, you know, we celebrate this beautiful idea of full equality between all residents and citizens of the country, regardless of race, gender, you know, creed, all of that. But we haven't completely lived up to that either. So I think there's an aspirational point there too. We do want to live a life that is a higher moral life. We do want Israel to be the vehicle of the morality that comes through the Torah and through our Jewish traditions. And there's a struggle, I think, inside Israel between people who want us to live out these values and think of Israel as a Jewish state, as a state that acts Jewishly. And there's a big debate on what that means to act Jewishly also. Even people who wanted to act Jewishly can't agree on what it means to act Jewishly. And another interpretation that says that, well, no, the state is an empty vessel that is just there for Jews to live and to live safely. That's more the Herzlian, you know. A practical Zionism kind of thing. This idea that, you know, it'll be a normal country, we'll have self-determination on our land, but there's nothing intrinsically Jewish about the state. It's just the state of the Jews, and they'll decide however they want to live their life. So it sounds like you personally have aspirations that even if the mechanisms that the book of Ayikra describes economically and socially have changed, and we're not going to become an agrarian economy, and uh, high-tech people aren't going to leave their computers to go and start planting oranges and so on, orange trees, I should say, but you would imagine or like or hope for a serious conversation among the Jews, maybe also the non-Jews living here also, about how we might imagine implementing some of these values, where we are maybe a little less connected to our shaliyah, to what belongs to us, and a little more focused on making sure other people have what they need and what they have. And maybe to not be in that sheet mode that you mentioned earlier, that the land is ours, it belongs to us, it's us, it's us, it's us. But to really get behind the idea that we're here on condition that we do something with this place in a way that we're supposed to, and that should motivate us more perhaps than it does. Right. And I do want this one takeaway, if our listeners can take this one principle, I do really feel strongly that we've moved too close to this idea, as you say, of the Bereshit kind of covenant, and too much away from the Vayikra idea politically. I think we've developed a very possessive idea, especially religious people in Israel have developed this possessiveness over the land. And religious leaders and politicians speak about the land and it is ours. We own it. That is, I think, not a Jewish idea, or at least not an idea that reflects the ethic of Vaikra. 
Vayikra reminds us again and again, The land will never be sold forever. The land is God's. And if the land is God's, it doesn't just mean that he can remove us from the land at will. If we sin, it also means that we have to have this kind of detachment from the land. We have to have an emotional detachment from the land because we're there to sort of, we're there to protect it, to cultivate it. God gave it to us as a gift temporarily. We're also temporary. We will all pass. And sort of there's, it's more flexible relationship between us and the land. Yeah, I would say, I guess to me, it's not about detachment. You can be deeply connected and deeply in love, but understand it's not about owning. It's the same way you can be very attached and in love with or loving another person, but that doesn't translate into owning them. And I think in loving relationships, some of us get that confused sometime. And it sounds like in a relationship to the land of Israel, you're going to argue some of those folks who feel a lot of love for the land of Israel might need to rethink a little bit about what it means to love as opposed to own or control. Uh, and maybe that's a different idea. Yeah, I love that analogy. Thank you, Tzvi, for bringing that in. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, now we at least have one person who's on a podcast with me that liked what I said. So I think that should be noted for all of those in the future. Anything else you'd like us to close with, Elchanan, that you want to let us know? No, I hope that we merit the blessings that the Torah promises us and God forbid not suffer the curses because they're there as well as a warning. We don't always experience them, but you know they're always there as a sort of ominous threat in the back of our minds that there is someone looking over us and seeing whether we act in accordance with his laws. So we should be aware of that as well. Okay, that's a strong way to end. Everybody's listening to this podcast. Be aware, we have values and ideals that we need to live up to, and those should be at the front of our mind as often as possible. Elchanan, thank you very much. Terrific way to end the book of Vayikra together. Really appreciate you joining me. I learned a lot. And I hope that those of you who listen to this one and previous ones will continue listening in the future. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.